Hey, 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 it's Rob, and it's your weekly Corner Shpeti. This week, we're unlocking a Patreon episode I did a couple months back about the history of mass shooters and the internet. We're unlocking it first because we got a good response, and second because I'm in the process of recording a follow-up episode, analyzing uh, this topic through the idea of the spectacle, as developed by Guy Debord. So if you like it, check out our Patreon for similar content. This episode already has an intro, so I'll leave it at that. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. Rob here. If you haven't noticed already from the title, we got something a little different this week. If you've been wondering where I was for like a month, I was reading the various journals, manifestos, and online posts of school shooters, incels, and the more recent political shooters, by which I mean the Christchurch mosque shootings, the Hala Yom Kippur attack, the ones announced beforehand on Poll, whether on 8chan or one of its spinoffs. I've been doing that for a paper for one of my classes. My thesis basically was that the string of 2019 mass shootings have to be understood in the context of school and incel mass shooters on the internet, starting especially with the Columbine High School massacre in 1999. Now, the reason I want to share all this with you is because I think there are important implications to this project. Like, what does politics mean today that doesn't quite fit in an academic paper? I think that we as leftists, as leftists online, can both understand what's going on here better than others, and I think we need to try to grapple with how the internet structures political ideologies and the possibility of radical action and change today. The far right might be very different from the left, but the relationship between far right ideology and the internet is informative for us too, especially if we want to envision how to actually change the world. So I'm going to tell a very condensed history of the internet since about 2005, and a history of the post-Columbine school shooter phenomenon. I'll explain how both developed over time, and how a new, more politicized version of the spectacular mass shooting emerged, like the ones we saw in 2019. Two points before we start. First, I'm going to go ahead and use full names. Even in Germany, where there are privacy concerns, newspapers have used the full names of the suspects, and I don't really think I'm promoting them or whatever. Second, a massive content warning for everything coming. This stuff is bleak. I think I have a pretty thick skin, and a lot of this got to me. But I'm not doing this to wallow in how fucked up all of it is. I think we can understand something about the internet box we stare at all day, and how we understand political action in the world today by looking at this history. And I hope we'll get there by the end. There are five 2019 shootings to introduce. The first chronologically is also probably the most well-known. In March 2019, Brenton Tarrant, a white 28-year-old fascist, that's his label, opened fire at two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand during Friday prayer. He killed 51 and injured 40 more. He was live-streaming it all on his Facebook. Minutes before beginning, Tarrant posted a link to his Facebook and a manifesto titled The Great Replacement on 8chan's poll board. His post begins, quote, well, lads, it's time to stop shitposting and time to make a real-life effort post. He called them all top blokes and said to spread his message with making memes and shitposting as you usually do. A significant amount of attention was given to the fact that Tarrant used popular memes in his manifesto, for example, the Navy SEAL copypasta. He also said subscribe to PewDiePie in his live stream, which started that whole thing, if you don't remember. 
But despite warnings that the memes will trick unsuspecting readers into becoming Nazis, his ideology is pretty clear throughout his manifesto. He called for mass murder against the, quote, enemies of the white race, and summarized his ideology as the 14 words multiple times. Just for reference, because this will keep coming up, those 14 words are, we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children, popular contemporary fascist slogan. And it's pretty clear that it was his beliefs that inspired others. A month later, 19-year-old John Ernest attacked a synagogue outside San Diego, California, killing one. He too posted a manifesto and link to a live stream on 8chan's poll board just before the shooting. The live stream didn't work, apparently, because his Facebook was set to private. The shooting was also exactly six months after the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh. That was the one where the perpetrator Robert Bowers posted, screw your optics, I'm going in, on Gab beforehand. Ernest praised both Tarrant and Bowers repeatedly in his manifesto. Ernest's post included a list of, quote, very memeable songs that were supposed to be played during his live stream. He also said that he had only, quote, been lurking here for a year and a half, but what I've learned is priceless. Then in August of 2019, 21-year-old Patrick Crucius opened fire at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas. He too posted a manifesto on 8chan's poll board, and the site was finally shut down afterwards. But one week later, Philip Manshaus, a 21-year-old in Norway, posted a meme of Tarrant, Ernest, and Crucius as chads, you know the one with them doing the walk, on the politics board of Endchan, another Chan spinoff. He said he was, quote, elected by St. Tarrant, and that you have to, quote, bump the race war thread IRL, and if you're reading this, you have been elected by me. He killed his sister, who was adopted from China, before attempting a shooting at a mosque outside Oslo. And in October, 27-year-old Stefan Ballier attempted to break into a synagogue in Halle, Germany, on Yom Kippur. When he failed, he killed two and injured two others in the city before being captured, targeting non-white people in particular. All five were captured alive, actually. Balier made an announcement post on Meguka, an apparently more radical spin-off of HN, where he uploaded multiple text files showing his homemade 3D-printed guns, and included things like a list of Xbox-style achievements for doing things like killing Jews or burning down a mosque, and a link to his Twitch, where he live-streamed his shooting. These attacks have two precedents in particular I want to point out. First are the 2011 Norway attacks, in which the 32-year-old Anders Breivik set off a bomb outside the parliament building and shot and killed dozens of people at a youth camp of the Norwegian Labour Party. He killed 77 people in total, at least 50 of whom were 18 or younger. It's estimated that one in four Norwegians knew someone affected by the attacks. And in 2014, 21-year-old Dylan Roof shot up a black church in Charleston, South Carolina. Both Breivik and Roof posted manifestos online. Breivik's was a 1,500-page compendium of copy-pasted far-right blogs, a diary he kept of acquiring bomb-making materials and what video games he was playing, and his idea of a new Knights Templar to defend Europe from Muslims, feminists, and cultural Marxists. Roof posted a short manifesto to the website thelastrhodesian.com. Both Roof and Breivik referenced elements of the U.S. white power movement. The American Nazi Party founder George Lincoln Rockwell, the Northwest Separatist idea, and the 14 words, which were coined by a U.S. neo-Nazi named David Lane. And this history is important, uh, and it's significant how many ties it has to these later shootings, but we're going to have to save that for a different episode. What's important here is that the 1980s U.S. white power scene is also where the idea of leaderless resistance is popularized, basically encouraging lone wolf or small cell terrorism because it's harder to infiltrate or combat. 
Brevik and Roof can certainly be understood as examples of it, whether they explicitly adopted the idea or not. And Tarrant refers to Brevik and Roof by name in his manifesto as his influences, and said he was in contact with Brevik. But still, this doesn't quite explain the 2019 attacks. Or at least there's something else going on too. There are leaderless resistance underground cells like Adam Watfin in the US and NSU around today. But they don't do one single act which results in their death or capture. They try to continue operations. All five 2019 attackers and Roof and Brevik were captured alive after one rampage killing. And that seemed to be the point. But they're also different from other cases of lone wolf terrorism, even if those cases also refer to a single movement. Think of most attackers who claim allegiance to ISIS. They don't write a manifesto. The 8chan posters want to canonize themselves with their own words and thoughts. So somewhere in between these two types, we have the 2019 shooters. They're self-absorbed in the sense that they think their own ideas, memes, whatever is worth writing down and spreading. But they also see political action, quote-unquote, doing their part, as one single spectacular act of violence, one sacrifice, one decision. The action legitimizes their ramblings, whatever they were doing or thinking, as political. And that's where the school shooters come in. Because these guys act just like school shooters. Release a manifesto or your journals where you talk about your life, kill as many people as possible, get famous, and kill yourself at the end. Now, of course there are some differences over time, especially the suicide part and target chosen. But the history of school shootings tells us how and why mass shootings are now a tool for the fascist right. Starting with the Columbine High School Massacre in 1999, there's a chain of school shooters referring to themselves and past shooters as a continuous movement. All you have to do to be a part is to say you are and kill people. And where was a school shooter identity born? Uh, It's always been the internet. Even though Columbine was in 1999, the copycats started around 2006, which was right after Web 2.0 brings us all closer together and more connected. And school shooters as a kind of underbelly of the internet has been around since then. Those kinds of people are on here somewhere. Sometimes they're incels, or maybe now they're white supremacists, or all three at once. But the internet is not a passive medium. I think something about the internet as it exists today encourages thinking in this way. The internet is simultaneously always relentlessly self-absorbed, a world tailored for you, and yet you're anonymous on it. You see all these other people going viral, getting attention. It's a competition. You know what I think of sometimes as an analogy are those big streamers where someone will like donate a bunch to the stream just so a guy with blue hair will go, whoa, at Balls Liquor, thank you so much, $2,000, that's awesome. Like a cry for a little bit of recognition. The internet is like both the poison and the cure. It gives you a way out, it'll just cost $2,000. So what does that mean for politics? I think it offers the fantasy that you can do politics on your own terms. It's an illusion of control. For these right-wing shooters, it's turning internet fantasies of genocide and racial superiority into real-life mass murder, which, in their logic, proves they did their part. It defines the scope of politics for them. Even back in 1999, the mass shooting was defining a way out of a society you hated. It was the template for being really radical, setting the bar for what you have to do. No wonder they all describe themselves and the feeling as godlike, elite, superior. They all use those words. But it doesn't really change anything. At the end, deep down, it's more about purging your own anxieties, fears, marking yourself as different, better, one of the good ones. In a real sense, then, 
it's not really politics. Real change might not be what you can imagine or expect. It might not be on your terms. It is certainly something bigger than you and something you can only see develop in real time. You won't get to decide what's demanded of you. And that's something that anyone on the internet who thinks about changing the world has to grapple with. So here's the plan. I'm going to explain the Columbine High School shooting, the attacker's ideology, and why it matters, then explain how the school shooter identity developed on the internet in the mid-2000s. Second, I'll jump ahead in time to talk about Elliot Roger, the patron saint of the incels and a school shooter himself. He and the incel ideology is the crucial transition between Columbine and Christchurch. I'll also update our narrative, taking us from where we left off in the late 2000s, basically from when the word red pill is coined through Gamergate to the rise of 8chan. Finally, I'll come back to fascist shooter manifestos, and I want to emphasize, despite changes of course, the similarity between all three ideologies. Each shooter claims to know the hidden truth of the world which explains their suffering. Consummating this knowledge in an act of spectacular violence is a quote, revolution, that's their word they use, all of them, which recasts themselves as superior and reveals this hidden truth to society, to some community which might listen to or understand them. Individual self-awareness as politics can be seen in the school shooter's rejection of society as unnatural, the incel's belief that women control the world through sex, and the fascist belief that the white race is under attack, in some formulations as part of a global Jewish plot. In closing, I'm going to return to the idea of revolution, politics, and imagining a future. The internet offers us a fake world, where online points can be quantified in faves, follows, for some, how many news agencies write about your mass shooting. We have to understand this dynamic in order to understand the right wing today. And I think we have to understand the right and this spectacular idea of revolution, a fake vision of the future, before we can really imagine a future and what kind of politics will get us there. So let's get into it. On April 20th, 1999, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, both 18, killed 12 students, one teacher, and wounded 24 more at Columbine High School in suburban Colorado before killing themselves. It followed the O.J. Simpson trial as the second biggest media event of the decade and basically created the modern school shooter. There had been school shootings before. Um, in particular, Stephen King had actually written a short story called Rage in 1977, which was linked to five different school shootings in the 80s and 90s, after which King took the book out of circulation. The difference with Columbine, first, is the media attention. It was already the deadliest high school shooting in U.S. history, but the two had planted bombs in the cafeteria intending to kill hundreds more, and other bombs they planted did go off. They made videos which were intended to be seen, like they almost imagined the media coverage. They showed off their weapons, explained their ideology, at least in their 18-year-old words. They specifically criticized previous school shooters who did it just to be accepted by their peers. This points to a different reason for the shooting. And they planned to be world famous. They debated whether Spielberg or Tarantino should direct the movie based on their life. What's important for us is that the Columbine shooters intended for their actions to have meaning. As one researcher put it, Columbine raised school shootings from mere revenge to a political act. They intended their action to be a social critique, and the means to make that statement was mass murder. And they were right in a way because it's a historical fact. Later school shooters picked up and edited this script, and that's the second difference with Columbine. They started a movement which unfolded online across the world. So what was their ideology? Well, not much, but that's also kind of the point. 
They were outcasts, sure. They and their friends started calling themselves the Trenchcoat Mafia, after all. Klebold, in typical teenage dramatic fashion, wrote that he was, quote, the most miserable, or that he lived, quote, the most miserable existence in the history of mankind. They said that this is because of their self-awareness. They use that word a lot. Basically, they can see the truth of how fake society is, how arbitrary its laws and norms are, unlike their peers. As we'll see again and again, this codifies a probably temporary awkwardness or social hierarchy into something unchanging, or even natural, with grand meaning. And it makes radical, spectacular action and violence the only alternative to an unchanging society. So with this special self-awareness, they become nihilistic. They see everything is meaningless. It allows them to think of natural selection as an alternative. That's the other phrase Harris in particular uses a lot. They're only suffering because society makes those who stick to their, quote, natural instincts into psychos or lunatics. Harris in particular is angry all the time, and hey, if this, is, if this were a natural world, that'd be a good thing. So the ideology or their line of thinking both fixes the social order in place and gives them a way out to put themselves on top. A later Finnish school shooter, 18-year-old Pekka Erik Ovinen, who committed a mass shooting at his high school in 2007, was inspired by Harrison Claybold and summarized his slash their ideology like this in his manifesto. Life is just a meaningless coincidence. However, life is also something that an individual wants and determines it to be. And I'm the dictator and god of my own life. And me, I have chosen my way. I am prepared to fight and die for my cause. I, as a natural selector, will eliminate all who I see unfit, disgraces of human race, and failures of natural selection. They would all describe themselves as God, and this feeling of being empowered to commit a mass shooting as godlike. Two points before I move on. This was connected in these shooters' minds to being young somehow. The system that brainwashes and turns everyone into, quote, good little robots includes schools and parents. They have self-awareness because they're still young, and they get to break out or kill themselves before they get any older. Second is revolution. Harrison Klebold said in one of their videos that they want to kickstart a revolution of the dispossessed. And later school shooters would use that word too, revolution. What did it mean? Basically death, destruction, chaos. Harris said in one video, you all have to die, we all have to die too. And whether or not it's an accurate definition of revolution or even consistent, they kept using the word. So we have to think about what it means for them. I should clarify, no school shooter was like a member of any political organization. But Harris loved the Nazis and Hitler and talked about them often and basically implied that what he's doing is like what they would have done. Researchers have made connections, that is, already before 2019, between Harris and Claybold and paramilitary fighters, or the idea of the righteous paramilitary figure. Harris and Claybold seem to be inspired by Timothy McVeigh in particular. They planned to commit the shooting and planned bombing on April 19th, the anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing. That they were delayed a day and that April 20th is Hitler's birthday appears to be a coincidence. I should note that Claybold also wore a hammer and sickle pin on his shoe the day of the shooting, and that Finnish shooter Pekka Erik Ovinen committed his shooting on the 70th anniversary of the October Revolution. So it seems like they were using historical reference points more to offer context, like, hey, people have killed each other in the past, you know? Let's jump ahead to the mid-2000s. Were there school shootings between 1999 and 2005? Yes, but the numbers of whether there were more or less is hard to parse. What we do know is that there weren't many shooters directly copying Columbine's ideology or claiming to be the next generation after Harris and Klebold. That doesn't start until around 2006. 
Which brings us to Web 2.0, that beautiful new internet. The phrase was popularized in 2004 to describe the new kind of internet which enabled social connections and user participation. Things like social media and blogs were revolutionizing the internet. Instead of the old Web 1.0 where you accessed information online, now the users would make their own content. On YouTube, founded in 2005, some of this content was budding school shooters making videos of themselves, acting out killings, pointing guns at the camera, and narrating their thoughts. I guess inevitably it also meant referencing each other, and in particular Harrison Claybold as a reference point. They hailed the Columbine shooters as heroes and gods in their own journals and manifestos. They modeled their attacks on Columbine, for example wearing trench coats over homemade t-shirts which displayed a message. At Columbine, Harris had one that said natural selection and Claybold wrath. They also wanted their murder to have some meaning, a social critique, and use journals and manifestos and videos to that end. In other words, Columbine provided the script, and the internet made it into a self-aware movement. But the shooters themselves rejected any mere copycat label. Sebastian Bossa, 18-year-old who in 2006 attacked his former high school in Germany, likened Harris to the Pope and himself to a priest. Quote, is a priest in a small village only the Pope's copycat? No, of course not. He believes in the same thing as the Pope, but he doesn't copy him. He looks at things the same. Like the fucking Pope, he is a part of a whole. Ovinen, the Finnish shooter I mentioned before, described his act as political terrorism and wrote in his manifesto, quote, Although I chose the school as target, my motives for the attack are political and much, much deeper, and therefore I don't want this to be called only as school shooting. Now, Harris and Claywell themselves were early internet users. They maintained their own websites and infamously made a map of their high school in Doom, so they were pretty tech-savvy. So even though YouTube didn't exist yet, I don't think it's a stretch to understand their videos and journals as influenced by the idea of online exchange, even if the possibility wasn't there yet. But for Bossa, Ovinen, and these later shooters, it was there, and they certainly aimed to be widely seen. Bossa switched his diary from German to English halfway through, Ovinen and Sung Hoo Cho, the 23-year-old who committed the then-deadliest shooting in U.S. history at Virginia Tech in 2007, both innovated the manifesto format. Cho had sent texts, pictures, and videos directly to NBC News, and then Ovinen had produced a document that said, my manifesto, basically. Now, Harrison Claybold did not release a formal manifesto. They just made videos and journals and intended for it to be read, and the media and police published it all, so it was. But as a result, their legacy is kind of mixed. What's picked up by later shooters also includes more mundane aspects of their online activity that was published. Harris's habit of listing on his personal website things he hated, things like country music and people walking too slowly in the mall, was picked up by Ovinen, who put it directly in his manifesto with a section of things he loved and hated. I think this is an important forerunner for the later mixing of the personal and the cultural, maybe even memes, as political statements. These later shooters also recognized each other. Bossa mentioned several other non-Columbine school shooters in his journal, and when Cho committed his shooting in April 2007, Ovinen noted the historic day and the, quote, new record. And all these budding school shooters existed in a broader internet culture. They're not in a vacuum. And this is where that whole underbelly of the internet idea comes from. The internet more broadly, even if they didn't do school shootings, were aware of the phenomenon and often it was a kind of morbid joke. As early as 1999, a canonical list of Columbine jokes was compiled on Usenet. There's also the idea of a high score, you know, that school shooters are competing against one another to kill the most people. 
I found a reference to it in 2008, but I'm sure there are older ones too. Basically, there have always been memes and morbid jokes about school shooters. People on the internet recognize that it's connected somehow. <laughs> They're on here somewhere. After 2012 especially, maybe reflecting changes in the internet, there are more like image macro memes or making fun of thoughts and prayers, things like that. Another crucial aspect are fandoms. Whereas Harris and Claybolt's fans were in their head, Web 2.0 era school shooters were immersed in the fandoms themselves. Researchers have studied school shooter fandoms on Tumblr, DeviantArt, and especially in the 2006-2007 period on YouTube. That is before YouTube uh, implemented stricter uh, moderation. Underneath school shooter videos, that is in the comments, fans created community. And researchers point out the quote, performative statements that saying things like, we are all, or we are from all around the world or in this community. Users admired the shooters for their superior intelligence and sometimes favorably linked their ideology to neo-Nazi ideology. But for most, however, identification was just temporary or emotional release. But I think that it exemplifies something on the internet, this blurry line between real life violence and the spectacle of violence online and being a fan of something, but not really. And it's just kind of a play acting. All these things are swirling around. Uh, I mean, I think they, they become even more intense when we get to the later, more recent internet history, but we already see it at this early stage. I wanna leave the internet narrative there in the late 2000s. But before moving on to Elliot Roger and the incels, I want to bring up two later school shooter examples because both of them are kind of wild cases and I think say something about the internet. The first is Adam Lanza, the 20 year old who in 2012 did a school shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School. He was a real weirdo, complete shut in, honestly probably what you picture a school shooter being like. Uh, it doesn't appear he ever went to college, but he submitted a college application essay, you know, which are supposed to be 500 words, but his was 35 pages describing the history of and defending pedophilia. And yes, like the classic joke, he did point out the difference between pedophilia and ephebophilia. The reason I bring up Lanza is that he was extremely online. He was active on school shooter fandom slash discussion boards. And that's, that's the thing about a lot of these discussion boards, kind of like forerunners of true crime discussion boards today. A lot of future school shooters were just normal users until they decided to do a school shooting. Anyway, Lanza had an Excel spreadsheet of mass shootings around the world with over 400 entries, listing things like weapon use, number of people killed, things like that. He noted Brevik's attack in particular, calling it, quote, such an impressive instance of mass murder self-actualization that it seemed fictional. I wouldn't call it encouraging, but it seemed motivational enough in some sense that it was the kind of thing you would find in a particularly macabre self-improvement book. Lanza didn't release a manifesto or even follow directly in the Harris-Klebold natural selection ideology, but he was certainly aware of them. To the extent he talked about his ideology, it was a kind of anti-civ primitivism. He often said he wishes he was a gorilla living in the jungle. I say this because in late 2011, he called into Anarchy Radio, John Zerzan's radio show. John Zerzan is the famous anarcho-primitivist who has written a lot about mass shootings, actually, as a symptom of the problems of modern civilization. So Lanza calls in to ask Zerzan if he knows about the case of Travis the Chimp. Zerzan doesn't, so Lanza explains that Travis is a chimpanzee who was raised like a human, watched baseball, lived at home, even took Xanax, and seemed to live a happy life. But one day he gets agitated and attacks a friend of his owner, almost killing her. I won't get into the details because they're very gruesome, but you can look them up. 
Travis is shot and killed by police responding to the scene. Zerzan, for his part, is just like, wow, uh, that's something. But Lanza's point is basically that this is what happens in modern society, and he directly compares a chimpanzee to a mass shooter responding to the effects of modern society. So we see, again, an emphasis that there's some natural order that society is just covering up. The second case I want to mention is Randy Stair, a 24-year-old who in 2017 killed three of his four co-workers on the night shift at the supermarket he worked at. He was obsessed with Eric Harris and said he wanted to copy Columbine. The reason I bring it up is because Stare had a bit of a following on YouTube, first making short scripted comedy videos, things like bloopers, there's a talking frog, I don't know, you can imagine early YouTube stuff. Later, he developed an enormous fanfic universe around the character Ember McLean from the Nickelodeon show Danny Phantom. Now, as a kind of manifesto, Stare uploaded every video he ever made in a zip file, that, which he then uploaded online. He included a short text document with it titled, Please Read, in which he describes his plan to do a mass shooting as another piece of content. Seriously, here are the first two sentences. Quote, It is with great pride and confidence that I present to you the biggest release of my life. This digital set is nearly everything you ever could want to have as a fan of my content. Now, he's not just talking about his existing videos because there are a bunch of new videos in the file, which are daily vlogs of him describing the lead up to his attack. And the manifesto is about how and why he's going to do a mass shooting. Whew. Well, I told you this is going to be exhausting. <laughs> I want to leave that there and introduce Elliot Roger. So on May 23rd, 2014, Isla Vista, California, 23 year old Elliot Roger killed six people, injured 14 more before killing himself. Minutes before the attack, Roger emailed a 137-page manifesto slash autobiography titled My Twisted World, The Story of Elliot Roger, to dozens of people, including his parents and therapists. In it, Roger outlines the incel ideology pretty clearly, even though he didn't use the word incel. The incels made him into a patron saint of the movement. The story is his blissful childhood, the discovery of sex, which ruins it, his suffering, and his lead-up to his, quote, day of retribution. The Roger targeted a school and released a manifesto. He didn't actually reference any previous shooters. He did, however, inspire other school shooters, who listed him alongside Harris and Klebold as gods and incorporated incel ideology into the school shooting script. Now, not all incels are mass shooters, but violence or like the idea of a mass shooting has always been a constant in the incel subculture, let's say, basically since the mid to late 2000s. The term was actually invented by in the 90s by a woman engineering student, and it initially meant, you know, people who are shy or unable to form relationships, but it became violent uh, at some point. Maybe one transition point is in 2009, when a 48-year-old man named George Sedini killed three women at an aerobics class and at an LA fitness and wounded nine others before killing himself. Sodini became an, at times ironic, at times not ironic at all, symbol for early incel forums in the early 2010s. Mark Lapine, who is outside the school shooter lineage or history, um, has been reclaimed as a saint by the incel movement. In 1989, he wrote a note saying he wanted to kill women and feminists and then killed 10 women and four men at the Polytechnic University in Montreal. So. The incel shooters, I mean, 
there are more and more incel shooters today, and a lot of them are are also explicitly right wing, who are older or not necessarily school shooters, um, but who use Elliot Roger as a symbol or reference point. I think probably the most well known was the 2018 van attack in Toronto. But incel forums, which are often very young people, also debate and discuss the latest school shootings, often uh, debating back and forth whether the shooter is one of them or not. Now, about Roger, because I should say up front that I could talk about Elliot Roger for at least an hour by himself, but I'll resist. All the dynamics I'm trying to express in the mass shooting phenomenon, and even the example of how the world and revolution or change is structured in the incel worldview, it's all captured in Roger and his manifesto. That's why he fits so well as a transition from school shooters to fascist shooters, but that's also historically what actually happened. I mentioned Roger is a saint among incels, and saint is really the operative word here. The incel worldview is so fixed. It's not just that they can't have sex, but that they will always never have sex, that nothing changes, and again, it's, it's natural. Society is just a screen, it's not changing nature, it's just covering it up. So the only options for the incel are to brood, that's one of Roger's favorite words, wallow in your suffering, or to do a mass shooting. And the latter makes you a saint. Roger basically takes the logic of the school shooter's narcissism to its extreme, listing in his autobiography, listing basically every thought he had in his life. Uh, He doesn't really explicate a political worldview outside of his mind, I mean, he mentions fascism once. He says at the end he wants to put women in concentration camps. But I think for Roger, politics is like an entirely mental exercise. He can't even get to the level of social interaction of the fascist shooters who at least imagine an internet community around them. This is why I kind of consider Roger and his autobiography like outsider art, because it's so singularly focused on his suffering. You know those French novels from the late 1800s that are supposed to capture bourgeois ennui or whatever? I don't think you could write those today if you tried, but this is what they are today. Elliot Roger did it, and he did it because he didn't try to. Uh, if anyone thinks I'm praising Roger, um, I think we've talked on the show before about how about the links between art and fascism, so I'll, I'll, I'll leave that to the side. Basically for Roger, his self-absorption reaches artistic levels. He reminds me a bit of Jacob Wool, actually. His commitment to the bit is total, so much so that he doesn't know it's a bit. So, My Twisted World is narrated as a tragic coming-of-age story and starts with his description of his blissful childhood. He doesn't have to think about the future and can live in the moment. He acknowledges that he was completely oblivious, but was happy to be living in ignorant, innocent bliss. Roger describes things getting more intense every year he gets older, and he tried not to accept that it would all come to an end. He says repeatedly he was scared of growing up and haunted about things like entering middle school. Now, I should emphasize that Roger's family is pretty rich. Not mega rich, but they're in the Hollywood scene. His dad is a movie producer. Roger was at the red carpet premiere of The Hunger Games, a video which you can easily find on YouTube with many pro-Roger comments underneath. But his dad had some flops, made some bad investments. His mom had to move into a small apartment for a little while after they got divorced. And Roger actually would bring photos of his dad's house to school to convince his classmates that actually he was rich too. I read somewhere that Roger's sense of doom comes from falling from the top 1% to the top 10%, which I think captures it perfectly. But you can also just take Roger's word for it. 
Here's a quote from page 129 of his autobiography. After my therapy session, I got drunk in my mother's hot tub, trying not to think about all of the fun and sex that other young people were having that night. The transition for Roger between the blissful childhood and the brutal real world, he often refers to it as a jungle full of malicious predators, is sex. After puberty, Roger can't stop thinking about sex, how it's the one pleasure that isn't available to him. He talks about loving fancy food and clothes, and but about how it's all empty because there's this one thing that he isn't allowed to have. I'll quote him. Childhood is fun, but when a boy reaches puberty, a whole new world opens up to him, a whole new world with new pleasures such as sex and love. Other boys will experience this, but not me, it pains me to say. That is the basis of my tragic life. And Roger actually describes in exact detail the first two times he sees pornography. First, he's 11, and he's sent a picture of, quote, beautiful naked girls in an AOL chat room. And at 13, he notices someone else watching a porn video at an internet cafe. He describes being traumatized and shocked and says, quote, his childhood was fading away. Doesn't get any more clear than that. It's worth unpacking the incel's idea of sex because this is the key to the whole ideology. Roger's descriptions of sex, and I should point out he was a virgin, maybe obviously, and reportedly had an intense fear of women, like socially, um, are this vague sense of bliss. In one example, he, it's just, he describes just holding hands with a beautiful girl and walking down the beach. It's not some physical act. It represents an abstract ideal, a heavenly pleasure. It's almost like some manna that isn't an interaction between people or something you do. It's just this, I don't know, magic powder or something. This is what allows the incels to think it's some substance that they can never reach. And it structures for them a gender binary. So sex is something that women have by nature, and men can only acquire it from women secondhand. This, according to Roger and the incels, allows women to, quote, control which men get it, giving them more power in human society than they deserve. Like, literally, Roger doesn't see, they see women as the personification of sex, and thus not human. Just, Roger says explicitly, women don't have agency, they, quote, think like beasts, and in truth, they are beasts, completely controlled by their depraved emotions and vile sexual impulses. There's, there's a lot going on here. <laughs> there's, things can't be sexual or eroticized. Sex isn't something you can do on your own. Roger seems to not even be aware of the concept of homosexuality. The only way to have, quote, unquote, sex is to, and he uses this word a lot, acquire it from a woman. But men who do have sex with women are corrupted by their experience of, of the pleasure. Roger writes, the world is not supposed to be heaven. So Roger comes up with an ideology that puts him on top. But it takes a while to reach this. He describes in painful and pathetic detail how he keeps buying lottery tickets because he thinks if he wins the lottery, women will want him. He starts driving to Arizona and back just to buy tickets there because the jackpot is bigger. He tells his mom again and again that she has to marry a rich man so Roger can have an inheritance and that it's unfair that she won't do it for him. His dad gives him the book The Secret and he gets into it trying to visualize what he wants, sitting, winning the lottery, sitting in his room all day. Now, Roger contemplates writing a book to get rich and famous, but he realizes that it'll take years to actually get enough exposure or fame and he'll be old and have wasted his youth before he gets there, so there's no point. Like everything else, it has to happen immediately. Things don't really change. There has to be just sudden radical moments of break. 
everything has to happen immediately or else it doesn't matter. So what Roger thinks instead is that the injustices he has suffered must mean something. He writes, quote, he must be destined for greatness, to change the world, to shape it into an image that suits me. His suffering and, quote, exceptionally high level of intelligence have allowed him to see the world more clearly than others and how, quote, twisted and wrong this world really is. Ultimately, this leads directly to his decision to do, to do the mass shooting. He describes it as his purpose, something that will make him a god. He uses that word 10 separate times at least. He fantasizes about being a divine ruler who will put women in concentration camps. With sex abolished, quote, the man's mind can develop to greater heights than ever before and advance the human race to a state of perfect civilization. We need to contextualize this fantasy from Roger. He's just spent 135 pages talking about how his life is miserable and nothing will change, so that's why he has to do a mass shooting. Does he really believe then all this stuff about advanced civilization? On the one hand, it's a little bit of a difference compared to earlier school shooters because it's not just natural selection. At least he mentions advancing to a state of civilization or whatever. But it's still the same relentlessly self-absorbed idea, and it's basically beside the point. The only actual political action Roger offers is the mass shooting and suicide. And that's what makes him a saint for the incels. So Roger's a pretty prominent influence for school and incel shooters. But going back to the internet narrative, I want to mention two of the shooters he influenced in particular because they'll help exemplify these dynamics. The first is Christopher Harper Mercer, who was 26 years old and in October 2015 killed nine at his community college in Oregon before killing himself. He released a short manifesto online, quote, it's not as long as Elliot Rogers, but it's still good. Elliot is a god. Harper Mercer wrote he was a virgin who, like other elite people who stand with the gods, are denied happiness in society, adding his name alongside Elliot Roger, the Columbine Kids, Adam Lanza, and Sung Cho. Harper Mercer includes more personal details in his manifesto, his favorite bands, things like that, and, and in fact, the political rationalization seems kind of rushed or tacked on. Most crucially, he announced his attack the night before on the R9K board of 4chan. And that brings 4chan into our story. And it also makes Harper Mercer basically tied up in a less explicitly political, maybe more cultural example of of mass violence. The second case is 21-year-old William Atchison, who in December 2017 killed two at his former high school in New Mexico before killing himself. He didn't leave behind a manifesto, but he was intensely interested in school shooters, announced his attack online in a post, and was a self-declared neo-Nazi. Atchison was also friends with David Ali Sonbali, who who at 18 did the shooting at the mall in Munich, the one from 2016. Despite some confusion from the media, Sonbali was a neo-Nazi, the son of Iranian immigrants. He called himself a true Aryan and did his attack on July 22nd, the fifth anniversary of Brevik's attack. So Atchison represents the other half which is that there are real political connections, or they're calling themselves Nazis, basically. And while that's a change, we still have to understand this within the whole context we just laid out. So I left us off in the late 2000s, and I'll pick up again there with the introduction or the popularization of blogging. Maybe you've heard the term blogosphere. It was considered a particularly democratizing aspect of Web 2.0 because people can have their own voice, uh, outside of traditional newspapers. And I mean, this is all kind of before Twitter really got popular. It was like proto-substack. But it also gave rise to the something called the manosphere, 
which was a collection of anti-feminist blogs, which had significant followings on social media sites, Twitter, forum sites like Reddit. Now, the Manosphere, I think, is more is significant for being a collection of movements that would go on to spread all over the internet. We're talking men going their own way, men's rights activists, tradcaths, um, all, all that stuff, and incels too. The reason that they're important for our story is because this is where the term red pill is popularized online, at least according to Know Your Meme. Of course, as we all know, it's borrowed from the matrix and means breaking free from the artificial reality and seeing the truth of the world. For the manosphere, that means women control modern society and use its norms to suppress men, and they argue for a return to natural gender roles, and they're talking and they refer to evolutionary psychology and things like that. So kind of similar to the mass shooters. There's some natural order which is being suppressed by like a fake society, and then they have this special insight. There's something going on here between an idea of red pill for a lot of, let's say, men's rights activists who see it as maybe empowering themselves to do something, to make a change, or, oh, well, actually, it turns out I should be on top in, the, in a natural social order, so I'm going to, I don't know, whatever, work out or this or that, versus for a lot of incels and who come up with the term black pill, which even though they have this structure of seeing society as fake and there's some natural order, Nothing can really change, or the only thing you can do is commit a mass shooting. But again, some incels don't even see the mass shooting as changing anything. It's just turning yourself into a saint. Again, we'll come back to it at the end. Um, we have to bring 4chan into the story now. Uh, I'm not going to explain it like I did in my paper because I think everyone knows 4chan. What I do want to point out is a website called Ayashi World. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of it. I hadn't. Um, it's credited with pioneering the Chan style forum. But before it became a Chan-style forum, the website was used, so the creator of the website in 1995, used it as an online game where users reenacted that year's Tokyo Sarin gas attack, which killed 12 and injured thousands, and the user gained points for each person killed. So there's, some, there's something going on here from the very beginning with uh, 4chan and real-life death. 4chan has always been wrapped uh, death in kind of a layer of irony. If anyone knows the meme, Anne Hero was popular on 4chan, especially B for a long time, which referred to committing suicide. And on 4chan, there have been people live streaming their suicide or joking about it. But Anne Hero also sometimes would refer to doing a school shooting or mass shooting and then committing suicide. And so the line gets a little blurred here. I mean, there are cases of people referring to school shooters as Anne Hero, and it's like, well, are you praising their suicide or the other thing? I think the hero metaphor actually captures what's going on here. They see themselves as heroes, as mass shooters, but it's almost like the illusion of being heroic without actually any histor the historical agency or imprinting yourself on the world that heroism actually entails. I want to return to this in the conclusion, um, so let's, let's keep it moving. One day in October 2015, a 4chan post on R9K warned, quote, don't go to school tomorrow if you're in the Northwest. Commenters asked if this was the beta uprising, a meme referring to an incel revolution first coined on the Manosphere blog, actually, a few years earlier. Then when Harper Mercer's shooting broke in the Northwest, so presumably that was his post, users went into a flurry of excitement, like tons of posts popped up claiming to be soon-to-be school shooters, calling for more martyrs of the revolution. Was this serious? 
it's 4chan. The FBI opened an investigation into the site, but there was no wave of shootings. Some of you guys are all right. A line from Harper Mercer's post became a meme and took on its life of its own. This dynamic is one half of the the latter mass shooter phenomenon on, on the internet. Irony, ideology, and real life violence are all blending together. It's so epic that someone actually did a school shooting and I'm here on the website what, like as he announced it. There's something political about this that complements the whole Nazi side of things, which we should get into now. Because some people were getting very serious about all of this online politics. It wasn't just irony or a meme or like they wanted people to know that they were really serious about this deep down. Which brings us to the Gamergate controversy, which began in August 2014 and really was a turning point for the online right. Um, I know the more, I'm no expert, but the, no, the more I look into it, the more I'm surprised just how many threads it brings together. Um, researchers have noted that it was a watershed moment, moment of cross-fertilization between a lot of these older reactionary movements. So a lot of Manosphere blogs, even if they don't care about video games, promoted it as a culture war to further their cause. And 4chan was a staging ground for just trolling and coordinating harassment in general. The idea of mass violence was closely linked to this, whatever power this community felt like they had online, it was tied to the idea of a mass shooting. That was almost like the tool in their arsenal. I have two examples. A talk from Anita Sarkeesian, a frequent target of Gamergate at Utah State University in October 2014 was canceled after someone threatened to commit, quote, the deadliest school shooting in American history as revenge if she talked. We also have Andrew Anglin, who you may have heard of as the founder of the Daily Stormer in 2013, which is a neo-Nazi blog explicitly styled after 4chan. Anglin is a longtime 4chan user, calls himself a troll at heart, and he says he became a Nazi when 4chan's news board, that was the direct predecessor to Poll, was going, quote, full Nazi anyway, around 20, 2010 to 2013. He later threatened a woman by describing himself in a reply to her as, quote, the self-appointed spiritual successor to Elliot Roger. It's fitting then that, in a bit of historical coincidence, that it was the 4chan moderator's crackdown on Gamergate that led to a wave of migration to the recently created 8chan, which had uh, been created the year before, but was being promoted as a free speech alternative to 4chan. 4chan's politics board, Poll, which had already been developing neo-Nazi politics, not only uh, migrated in some ways to 8chan, but the poll community kind of existed across all of the various Chan sites. And I know um, I've had people point out to me that Trump in 2016 is also was also a galvanizing moment. Yeah, for getting more people to go on 8chan and on poll. But regardless, we've reached the 8chan part of this story, and we should take a minute to look at the fascist shooter manifestos. A kind of conspiracist white supremacy is fundamental to the new global far right at, at all levels. According to Cynthia Miller Idris, there are three overlapping dystopian fantasy theories in particular. The Great Replacement, White Genocide, and Eurabia. They're basically the same. The white race is under attack from other races, sometimes as part of a global Jewish conspiracy. A narrative of racial conflict on a global scale is pretty universal across the global far right. The specifics of whether one says Eurabia or Great Replacement often depends on time and place. So Brevik includes hundreds of references to the Eurabia conspiracy, that's some fusion of Europe and Arabia, by the way, while Tarrant titled his manifesto The Great Replacement. 
this general dis- conspiracist white supremacy takes on a kind of conversion narrative in the shooter's manifestos. Race, like sex for the incel, is like the hidden truth of the world. The knowledge of that truth suddenly gives the shooter a sense of superiority by virtue of being white and a mission to defend their race. And they even use the same words to talk about it. Roof, who says he was awakened by the Trayvon Martin case, describes himself as being, quote, completely racially aware. Racially aware. I mean, they say this a lot, but like, huh, it really makes sense when you, when you look at it in the context of these other mass shooters. Tarrant talks about the revelation of the, quote, truth of the assault on our civilization. Ernest calls Pohl the, quote, unadulterated truth, and in his manifesto calls on every Anon reading to commit an attack, since by virtue of their presence on the forum, they have discovered the truth. Now, the form that this threat often takes the form of differential birth rates, and Tarrant makes that his entire thesis. He opens his manifesto saying, it's the birth rates, it's the birth rates, it's the birth rates. If there's one thing I want you to remember from these writings, it's that the birth rates must change. This is a long-standing idea, goes back to the 14 words. It offers the shooters to assign blame very neatly in their theory. Brevik and Balier both talk about feminism. Balier says, opens his live stream saying that feminism is the cause of declining birth rates in the West. Some researchers argue he's an incel. And Brevik includes several articles on birth rates in his compendium. But it also takes on an, a form of intense fixation on children. Tarrant talks a lot about this uh, sweet, this 11-year-old victim of a terror attack in Stockholm, Ebba Ackerlund. He keeps calling her young and innocent and how it's learning about her death was his turning point, how he needed to take revenge. Turns into like basically a fetishization, I think, because much, again, in the context of the of the past shooters who had this idealized vision of childhood, what does it mean that you're, are you really defending? Are you creating some safe future for white children or are you just going out in a blaze of glory? Tarrant does not look at non-white children the same way. He writes that, quote, children of invaders become adults and reproduce. As young adults, 2019 8chan shooters are all between the ages of 19 and 28. They occupy a kind of liminal space, more aware than adults and more willing to sacrifice for youth. They are sharply critical of boomers, especially for the low rates of reproduction and their passive conservatism. But above all, it's because they're unaware of the crisis. They don't see the, the reality. Crucius writes that he has been, quote, preparing for a future that currently doesn't exist. Ernest says he's willing to sacrifice a, quote, fulfilling job, a loving wife, and amazing kids to, quote, defend the race. Brevik and Tarrant, at 32 and 28, are a little bit older than, than some of the other shooters, but they too are preoccupied with the end of their youth. Brevik talks about how all his friends are in the process of settling down and having kids, and Brevik chooses instead to start again preparing his attack. Brevik portrays his actions as a sacrifice, that he'd rather focus on starting a family, but feels compelled to do this mass murder. Tarrant basically says the same thing. But again, we can ask ourselves, it's, oh, I would love to defend the white, to, uh, to continue the white race, but I can't. It's like this almost like self-tragic positioning, which conveniently gives them a heroic outlet. Even though they've all been caught alive, and virtually all the school and incel shooters commit suicide, they do frame their action as basically every one of them says, I may die, or they reference their death, or say they've accepted death. And I think really even accepting your death or making a show of it 
is kind of part of it or part of the commitment, it, it has the same effect for these shooters. They're still proclaiming themselves. They're still giving themselves over completely to their spectacular action. And there's something about this that says, that explains why they call themselves revolutionary. Brevik, Taran, and Ernest do, at least. What it means for the contemporary fascist right is unclear. A lot of researchers point to general accelerationism and destabilization of the global order as a key goal of the far right. Tarrant calls their actions part of a, va a vanguard stage and says he supports radical action of any kind. He writes at one point, do not fear change, we are change. Like school shooters arguing for natural selection, mass murder is radical destabilization itself can fill in for the world for which they're advocating. So they might say they're advocating for some utopia, but if all you are is change, then all you have to do is the mass shooting. I don't know what the future holds. Um, it's promising, I guess, that there haven't been any mass shootings in the 2019 8chan mold since 2019. Of course, there are always lots of mass shootings, and the motivations and ideologies could change easily. Right now, it seems like the fascist shooters will just be folded in as just another online reference point. There have been a few shooters already who point to both Brevik and Columbine, or both Dylan Roof and Columbine as inspiration, for example, which might be a sign that in the future, there'll be even more blurring of what's a political mass shooting and what isn't. I've tried to argue that recent right-wing mass shooters can only be understood in the context of school and incel shooters even though they probably wouldn't cite them as a, as a direct influence. They would probably call them degenerate or something. Uncovering this link, though, casts doubt on the alleged goals or future vision of the far right. School and incel shooters have an idealized vision of youth to be defended, but their actual political commitments go no further than spectacular violence. Fascist shooters may use more traditional political language, but we should be skeptical of their claims to want to, for example, defend children, given the context. The writer Bifo Berardi analyzed mass shooters as heroes, fitting, given the meme and all. He writes, quote, I see them as the heroes of an age of nihilism and spectacular stupidity, the age of financial capitalism. He quotes an analysis of David Bowie's 1977 song Heroes as introducing a new brand of hero, appearing as it did at the dawn of neoliberalism, when the real political heroes, Trotsky, Lenin, even the Red Army faction, are all dead. Berardi continues, In the classical tradition, the hero was someone who subjugated nature and dominated the events of history with the strength of will and of courage. This continues through the Renaissance and modernity, though then the hero is like Machiavelli's prince, quote, the man who establishes the nation-state, builds the infrastructures of industry and gives shape to a common identity. What is the hero today? Berardi calls it a, quote, late modern form of tragedy, accompanied by a desperate lack of irony as humans respond to today's state of permanent deterritorialization. I gotta say he's onto something there. I emphasize the internet more in this episode, and that this mythic heroic idea appeals to the right wing especially, but they must know they're not really heroes like they're imagining, but they don't have the level of irony to wink at it or to acknowledge it. They have to really believe. Thus, you get something like Elliot Roger, who is so serious about his mission, but must know that a mass shooting is not like the heavenly pleasure of sex he fantasizes about. But the idea of, a, of the hero under neoliberalism has implications for the left, too. It's not the school shooter script, maybe, 
but maybe it's getting bogged down in anti-id poll or pro-id poll Twitter arguments, thinking you're doing politics. Building ships in a bottle, as one wise man put it. Maybe it's romanticizing John Brown, not for being an individual who intervened in a specific historical moment, but because he was awesome and showed he was one of the good guys. Even something like Wall Street Bets, the GameStop thing, captures a relationship leftist, or more accurately, people who want to see good things happen have to the internet. When all you are is a person online who can maybe amplify things, but really just follow along. The best political movement you can hope for is the politics of hype. The best you can imagine is to be there, along for the ride, cheering along. But it's a ride that's out of your control. Maybe the mass shooters are like the right wing wanting their own politics of hype. I imagine that's probably how the true believer fascists felt on 8chan when they saw a mass shooting in real time. For us, I'm optimistic though. I think the right, like these mass shooters, is fundamentally wedded to a dying, mythic, heroic vision, one that's increasingly pathetic, if dangerous, under neoliberalism, all hyped up on the internet. The left may be caught up in the internet spectacle in its own way, but so long as we really keep searching for the kind of political action and movement that can create a new world, and not settle for what satisfies our particular pleasure centers, we're on the right track.